0: You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Welcome to Chapter 10 of Notes from Norwich, Episode 10, Chapter 10 <laughs> of Notes from Norwich. This uh, is a book in podcast format now, I guess, <laughs> Chapter slash Episode 10 of Notes from Norwich. I'm Chris. I'm one of the three hosts of this podcast, and I'm here with the other two. I'm Jay and
1: I'm Marguerite.
0: Uh, Before we uh, plunge into, we're talking about chapters 21, 22, and 23, Um, Julian's kind of uh, observation of the meaning of the passion, I want to just say thank you to uh, uh, P. Fun, uh, an iTunes podcast reviewer who gave us an excellent, lovely, charming, uh, heartwarming review a uh, five star review, which uh, all of you are uh, invited to give us. But he also just wrote a review that was was charming to read. I think uh, I do this because I like talking to the two of you, Jan and Marguerite, about the revelations. Uh, but it it's really good to know that other people find it useful and fruitful. Agreed, and that charms my heart. Yes. So, thank you, P. Fun, whoever you are. I think I know who you are. But. Anyway, so here we are, Chapter 21. What do we have to say?
1: Well, the, the amazing thing to me, or the thing that struck me right away, <clears throat> was that Julian, has, as she has been in the last quite a few chapters, has been observing the Passion of Christ. And in vast detail of the various sufferings and the various uh, discoloration of the body and the, <clears throat> the drawing out and the pains and the blood, etc. And now she feels that this is the end of it. She has come to the end, and that her Lord will die. And she is braced for that, as you would imagine her to be but then she sort of blinks and looks up and realizes that he has in fact come completely back to life. And part of me wants to see that as childish or an immature take on, you know, the, the incessant happy ending kind of thing, which of course I, you know, reject in every way, but, thinking about it harder it seems to me that what she is being shown is in fact the ultimate truth we know that her observation of the passion wasn't um wasn't linear and it wasn't completely um historical she spends a lot more time with it than it actually occurred than than it took and So so that being the case, the case being that the timing is different, um, foreshortened as it were, and the fact that this is basically a revelation to her. This isn't an historical um, an historical record of a of a big event. This is a revelation to her, and so it's basically it has meaning for her and meaning for us too but it's it's all about the meaning of it not the actual not the actual happenstance of it so she has taken something that was finite in our understanding someone is is tortured and executed and she has made it infinite she has made it bigger than bigger than it was from the standpoint of how anybody might have observed it, or recorded it, or read about it, and if, if Jesus showed her this, this way, he is showing it to us, too, this way, because she has, later on, she has told her, she understands that she is, she is meant to share this these revelations with the world so this is a you know this is this is a message to us and what does it what does it mean about what we perceive in our histories in our looking around at our world at our day-to-day life getting up in the morning and making breakfast and going to work etc i mean is there is that also infinite so that's my that's where I landed after that particular episode.
0: I think there's a sense in which if Jesus had actually died, uh, in this, in this revelation, I mean, in history, he did actually die. Yes. That's recorded in the gospels. And I take that, um, uh, historically, as as an aspect of faith. But in terms of this revelation to Julian, um, if Jesus had actually died, it would have given a kind of closure. It would have brought something to an end that I think, as you're saying, Marguerite, I think in the kind of the mystical undertones of these visions, it's something that is that does not end that is not wrapped up that is not concluded and i think that there's something about the the eternity of god's love that never ends and is constantly outpouring for the sake of the world that the mirror of that is the eternity of god's well of christ's suffering specifically the suffering of jesus which is then, as we see later, the suffering of the whole Trinity. But that if Julian had seen a definitive moment when Jesus died, then that would imply that there's there's a moment when Jesus's uh, when the character of Jesus's relationship with humanity uh is different at one time than at another time and i think one of the things that she's hinting at is that our union with christ is an eternity of suffering and an eternity of joy and that what happens when we look at the hist- the, the historical character of jesus in his life and what happens in the gospels Um, That appears to change over time because that's how we experience reality, but in terms of how God experiences reality and therefore how reality actually is structured, these things don't change. There's, there's, There's no beginning and end in Christ. And so there can be no moment in Christ where Christ actually dies. He can only appear to be perpetually in the process of dying, just as he is perpetually in the process of being born into the world and perpetually in the process of teaching and healing and perpetually in the process of rising to his throne of glory. But we can't wrap our minds around that kind of thing because we're frail and finite and uh, limited in our ability to see. So we've got to divide things up into chapters, just like we're doing with this podcast, or chapters or episodes. <laughs> you can't listen to the whole of Notes from Norts simultaneously at once. You have to take it episode by episode. So too, with our perception of the life of Jesus. There, that, that's, my, that's my twist. Let's talk about this, this union of being with him on the cross.
2: Um, because I think that, is I, I I see in these three chapters, Julian kind of wrestling with and unpacking, like we've talked about the, the eternal aspect of this passion um, and how it relates to our lives seems to be kind of anchored in this notion of us being on the cross with him. Um, that... And this, we talked about, I think it was last time, about this notion of one this notion of being knit so tightly together with Christ. And that, this seems to be that concept in operation, um, that there is a, um, there is a, experiential union that we have with Christ in his passion that she's getting at that I think I think she sees as playing out in our lives is like so what I'm seeing here and I, I might be reading this wrong, but the, the tools for understanding suffering in this life um, as being union with Christ on the cross. Um and that she she calls us if we willingly remain on the same cross with his help and his grace until the last moment, he suddenly shall appear change his appearance. That this I see here kind of a way, a frame for understanding the misery that Julian observed in the world um, as being sharing and experiencing with Christ that suffering of being on the cross Um, which I think is not a a uniquely Julian idea that that we are are called to share in the suffering of Christ Um, but what I think she does is uses this to set up are then sharing in Christ's bliss Um, because it's the experience seems to be held together by Christ's countenance. She says um, that he changes his blessed countenance and the changing of his blessed countenance changed mine. And I was as glad as, and as merry as possible. And then later she goes on to say, Um, And here I saw truthfully that if he showed us his most blessed face, and I think that means like this face in bliss, now there is no pain on earth nor in any other place that would distress us, but everything would be to us joy and bliss. But because he showed to us an expression of suffering as he bore in this life his cross, Therefore, we are in distress and labor with him as our frailty demands. And so I'm intrigued by this concept of Christ's beholding us, then sort of forming us, you know, that we are, we. I hear her saying that we are sharing in this suffering on the cross because, or in some way, in part, because that is how Christ has shown himself to us and there is some sort of instructive value in this expression of suffering that unites us with his passion and so this on way of understanding the suffering seems paired with a way of understanding the bliss that she's, she's gone through and talked about the profound suffering that we witness on the cross that we are joined to. Um, And that sets up this discussion of Christ's bliss on the cross that we also share in when Christ's countenance has suddenly changed.
0: the focus on the countenance on the on the the face the image of the face of Jesus um, reminds me of uh, the places in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures where we're told that we can't look upon the face of God the Father because we shall be destroyed <laughs> the moment we do and Moses has this you know can I can I please see your face so I know who I'm talking to? And God says, "You know that would kill you. I'll hide you in the the cleft in the rock, and you can see my back as I walk by." And
2: not to jump ahead to chapter twenty two, but she she touches on that, um, and she's in that. She says, "With respect to the first date, Christ showed me His Father." In no bodily likeness, but in his quality and in his actions. That is to say, I saw in Christ what the Father is. Um, That Christ's countenance is, is the cleft in the rock in which we look upon God. Like Christ is that bizarre, beautifully bizarre meeting point where we we are able to look on the glorious face of God.
1: And the notion of the. Sorry, Jane. No, go ahead. The notion of the beatific vision is something that has. I mean, I remember learning that phrase as a little tiny child in like maybe first grade or second grade or something. And scripture bears it out. I mean, it's constantly. Talking about wanting to see God and the, the face of God, especially. And the more I think about it, the more I think about it, the more I think that there's, that this isn't just some idea, that this is really, you know, that this is really a thing, that this is, <clears throat> people, people long for it. People that, that have never even read the Bible long for it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's just a, I want to see God. I want to see God. I want to see God. So what What does seeing God, what would it do? What would it do to us? What would it do for us? I mean, I understand that, you know, if, if you see me, you will die because I'm so magnificent and everything. But I will we see God? I mean, just... In my own um, eschatology, I see, I believe that when we glimpse God, however that might be, in the on the final day, that that will recreate us as we were intended to be, that that will like fix us and. So naturally Julian I mean it's there's barely a chapter that she doesn't talk about about seeing the face of God and God's face and especially during this during this passion part because of looking at the face of Jesus and covered with blood and drying out and turning color and then and then being all happy and alive I th- I think for us as people who pray That that is something to pray for, to see God. I mean, we every now and then we get a sense that God is present with us, or that we get a feeling of God, a tiny little nudge. And as glorious as that is, if we had the full the full thing, you know, the whole enchilada. That would be it. That would be all we need. End of story.
0: If we ever were to achieve that, how could we ever return without feeling the loss of it? like Peter's response when when they go up on the mountain in the transfiguration and he says let's build booths here because he i it's my annual preaching on it that Peter has he has he is experiencing in that moment a sense that he is uh he, he has everything that he's ever wanted and I think there's some part of him that, that you know, wants to live in it forever. So I've always wondered what happens when they come back down the mountain and Jesus tells them, Peter and James and John, you know, don't tell anyone until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. What is that night like for Peter and James and John? When they go back and talk to the other disciples who didn't get to go up the mountain did they uh, i imagine and maybe it's because i have a, a tendency to be melancholic myself i imagine that peter at least went off and sat in the corner and was just uh like thoroughly depressed because he'd been there man he'd been up on the mountaintop and now he wasn't who could he talk to about it what was his life going to mean from then on How could he ever get back to that mountaintop again? I imagine that John probably was carried on for quite a a way by the bliss, by the joy. I don't know about James. (laughs) I don't have a strong sense of James's character, but I suspect that John was probably able to linger in the afterglow of ecstasy for some period of time. It probably the other disciples were like, what is up with that John guy? (laughs) But I don't know. I mean, so a, a profoundly transformational experience, especially if you experience it by yourself and you don't share it with other people, how do you process that afterwards? How do you integrate that back into your life? I mean, I I know it every summer, it's not happening this summer, but even when I just go away to camp for a week and I'm a chaplain at camp and then I come back from it and I just feel like I I want to just live or, or linger or talk about it, you know, what happened at camp for a couple of days. And my wife gets pretty irritated with me because all I do is talk about how great camp was. But I'm trying to integrate this experience, this transformative experience back into my life. And I guess, in a sense, that is what the whole of Julian's work is, right? These showings and her meditation on them is trying to sort through this. And what what do these revelations that happen in a whole different sphere of reality, how can she integrate them back into, quote, regular life, unquote?
2: I think um, and I'm thinking here about both two bits of previous showings, one Christ's face changing rapidly, and the the cycle between well and woe. Um, that there is there is something instructive through all of this that Christ is teaching her through these glimpses. I think how to bring it together, because um, I, I think, like, yeah, if you if you glimpse this beatific vision, you're never going to want to come back, and then you're going to come back to 14th century Norwich where people are dying and suffering, and it's like, what the hell? <laughs> I was I was there, I was there. I glimpsed the light, and now this. Um, and so I think that's this this idea of beholding God both in the bliss and in the suffering, um, because this this bit where we are on the cross with Him, it, it is no less a vision of God for her like this this comes about through beholding Christ's countenance um and so I part of me wants to see this as a lesson that um (laughs) I don't know the word to you because beatific vision sounds inherently blissful um but this is this is a lesson that the the union of with god in pain is no less a experience of being held in god's gaze than this beatific vision um and and i see the alternation between well and woe well, the changing of the countenance and here in this chapter we're seeing the countenance being the effective instrument by which we're, we're joined with the pain or the bliss. Um, This alternation starting to nudge us towards this understanding that, okay, yes, we, we glimpse this, this light of Tabor uh, from the transfiguration. Um, And we might long for that. I would imagine that over the decades after these showings, Julian spent many days longing for that again. Um, And we can know Christ is teaching us through this showing that we are no less beholding the face of God, the face of the father turned in our direction. um, when we are joined with this suffering and pain. I, I think um, this kind of, she's, she's trying to communicate, I think, how to, how to reconcile this blissful encounter with God with the suffering we see and experience in the day-to-day. And she's, she's trying to articulate how they're brought together actually in the in gazing upon God and fixing our gaze on Christ, making him our heaven in well and woe, is 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 the way we integrate it. It's it's the you know, we can we can get caught up in a sort of um, kind of yearning for pure ascent that can, I think, make us very disillusioned with life, with the world, um, and make it very difficult to function, quote-unquote, as a human in society. And I think... Here, Julian is giving us tools to think about what it means to bring that transfiguration Mount Tabor moment in with the Calvary moment um, and hold them together.
0: So, just for, um, just to build on that, so I think I, I've said uh, in past episodes that there's the short text and the long text of the revelations, and the short text was written much closer to, closer in time to when Julian had her revelations, and the long text was written much later after years of reflection. So, in this chapter 21, The whole – so midway through the chapter, there's – Jesus uh, asks, where is now any point to thy pain or thy distress, and we shall be fully blessed. Um, Everything after that until the end of the chapter doesn't appear in the short text. So that is – that whole last half of the chapter is – the fruit of reflection, which really kind of reflects what's going on in the chapter. Like there's there's the content of the revelation, and then towards the end, her kind of reflection on what it might possibly mean. But so I think what's going on is that there's, um, I mean, <laughs> I think what's going on. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but in essence, there's a way in which. Christ's suffering and Christ's bliss are both pure reflections of love and for Christ that's perfectly clear because that's you know that's his his experience that's the the reality in which he lives a purity of suffering. Uh, As a reflection of love, suffering as a side effect of loving, and also bliss as a side effect of loving. But for we humans, those seem impossible to integrate, or those seem like a challenge to integrate. Um, Which is why I think, you know, Julian is so useful as a meditation on the nature of suffering in the first place, because. That's so much of what human life is all about, is trying to make sense of our own suffering. Why do we suffer? Is suffering redemptive? Is suffering just? Um, what do we do with the inevitability of suffering? Uh, because it's no fun. <laughs> um So I think what is happening in this particular chapter is that Julian is beginning to integrate this notion that Christ can simultaneously be completely blissful, completely a a I was going to say a person of bliss, but Christ is more than a person, but Jesus's whole character can be purely dominated by bliss and also by suffering at the same time. Um, And I'm trying to sort through this myself because I can't imagine what that would be like. Because I've had moments that have felt like bliss, and I've had moments that feel like suffering, and they don't feel like they go together. But I think Christ is showing to Julian that, for him at least, for, for the Trinity, those are uh, the same thing, mm-hmm. or different facets of the same thing, um, or different different symptoms of the same thing. Yeah, I'm I, to, I think I'm trying to give words to it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think you're both right. Julian sees the love of God as being behind all of this, as being behind the suffering and being behind the bliss. And that the suffering for love brings bliss to Jesus, to God, to the Trinity, because of the great love that God has for us, which is, you know, when we talk about love, we think of our, our spouses or our children or our parents or our friends or animals or what the, the love that God has for us, it's, it's so much bigger than anything we can imagine. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's outlandish. It is just beyond anything that we can imagine or quantify. It's, I mean just the creation of this whole world and the the way every little step of our lives have gone to say nothing of our salvation story it's it's a mystery it's certainly a mystery how much god loves us or how what this love even is i mean you think of love and you think oh i love You know, I I love my friend um, Sabrina, but God loves me more than I love Sabrina. Well, I mean, that's just, that's, that's not helpful. That's not even relevant because the love that God has for us is, I don't even think it's love. I mean, I know we, we call it love, but I think it's something, I think it's something else. I think it's, I think unity, oneness, is more is more is closer to what it actually is than love, because you know we've just you know love means too many things to to people, too many little things to people, beautiful little things, but nevertheless, little things and compared with with what God does. So so for God to suffer for us, for God to suffer to that extent, to take all of our sufferings from the beginning of time to the end of time upon God's self on the cross and bear that and be happy about it. <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't know. But whatever it is, that oneness, that unity, Oneness is a better word than unity. The oneness is the only thing that explains it to me, you guys.
2: And all that's asked of us is to be satisfied. Again? All that is asked of us is to be satisfied. to, To see this and... If thou art satisfied, I am satisfied. It is a joy, a bliss, an endless delight to me that ever I suffered the passion for thee. And if I could suffer more, I would suffer more. That that you know, the uh, the oblate rule talks about um, understanding God's love and living our life in response to that love. Um, and this is this is the response to the love that you've described that. This, this wanting love, this this unifying love that pulls us all into equally into this bliss, as she says a little later, um, the re- the responses to be satisfied.
0: So we're in chapter 22, if you're following along uh, at home, uh, we're at the start of chapter two, yeah, with this provocative question that Christ asks, Art thou well satisfied that I suffered for thee? It's such a bizarre, beautifully bizarre question.
1: So bizarre.
0: What, so why is it bizarre? Bizarre to you
1: because we aren't supposed to be satisfied god is supposed to be satisfied with the suffering i mean that's how i learned it i learned that the sufferings of christ were to satisfy the father i mean i don't buy that anymore but that's that's the usual take and i'm pretty darn sure that that's was what how it was viewed in the 14th century in Norwich and everywhere else in the world. That the satisfaction was made by Christ to God, not by Christ to us. It wasn't and I know he's not asking her like for permission. I mean, I know he's not like the, you know, the refrigerator guy calling you up and seeing how your refrigerator's doing. Are you happy with your purchase? Although that's how, that's how you read it when they first read it. I think, but then, yeah. go ahead.
2: I think it it's the scandal of the Lord and master having primary concern for the servant's satisfaction. Um, this. I totally agree with you, Marguerite. Like that, it's just, it's this inversion that um, it is delightful that this, she calls him a courteous lord elsewhere, that like he that he's in the house t- tenderly caring for, motivated even by this satisfaction of his servants. Um and that's what's so bizarre to me that this it's this inversion of expect of expectation um, that oh wow I, I'm I am a vassal, a serf in this in this Lord's kingdom. And he is asking me, are you satisfied that I suffered for you? It's this, this in radical inversion of status um that I think I, I, I think had kind of been occluded. I th- I think it, it's inherent, I think, to the gospel, to the message of the cross. That's why it was foolishness to Jews and and Gentiles and it it this this inversion is um to a to a worldly logic idiotic um but i think that had gotten occluded by julian's day and she is um kind of taking it off the shelf and dusting it off and reminding us that this is the cross is a scandalous thing that the lord the master the creator um Debases himself so, and out of love, asks us if we are satisfied, and asks only that we be satisfied.
0: It's easy to uh, knit together parallels with the uh, the times um, in my life, and I think it's I'm not unique among humans where where I have tried to express my love and care for people. Um, not only do I want to go out of my way to do, um, to make gestures to show how much I care, whether it's making a mixtape back when I was, you know, in high school and I was trying to uh, flirt with people, you know, make them a mixtape, right? Um, back in the day. Uh, I think that's a skill that is missing today when everything's just Spotify playlists. But we used to make mixtapes. But so not only do I want to come up with an expression of my care, which is a sacrifice, almost always, a sacrifice of time, of attention, of... um, of kind of life, life commitments. I mean, that's kind of what goes on in the sacrifice that is marriage or committed relationship. This idea that I am not going to live solely based around the gratification of my own interests, but I'm going to constantly be thinking of your interests as well for life. I mean, it's so it's there's, there's a sacrifice in all love but not only that i want to make sure that you've gotten the message like i want to make sure that you know because i mean it's it's great to um it's great to express love through sacrificial actions and attitudes but you also have to know that that's received like unrequited love is no fun for anybody um, although it's, you know, certainly created a lot of beautiful poetry in okay. the world. Um, and it's, you know, certainly it's a valid form of love, but it's like the 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 loop is closed when you know that the recipient of the love is aware of it and can fully appreciate that, oh, yeah, you're not just being nice to me. There's – it's that's a common trope in romantic comedies, right, where the person who's the recipient of the love finally, like – like the light switch flicks and the, the bulb goes on that this person is doing this nice stuff, not just because they're a nice person, but that, Oh yeah, they, they love me. And then they take on board, they incorporate into their own worldview, the fact that they are loved and then they can respond to it. And then the loop gets closed and the circuit is connected. Um, So then, you start thinking about, like, what ways can you express love for somebody? And as I've hinted at before, they they pretty much all seem to be sacrificial in some way. And, you know, as John chapter 15, verse 13, I think, uh, verse – Greater love has no one than this. Yeah, I was right. I never do that. John fifteen thirteen. I did not grow up in a tradition where I was supposed to memorize Bible verses, so I'm always impressed at myself when I can do that. Greater love has no one than this, that, that he lay down his life for his friends. Um, so, to me, all that meditation comes back to... This reflection where, where it's like Jesus is making sure, I mean, it's, it's, it would have been enough for him to offer his life in the passion, the, his suffering in his life for the sake of the world. But in order to have love be the fullest love, Julian and we uh, have to comprehend it. And so I think there's this, the, this, yes, breathtaking moment where Jesus says, "Like you get what I've done, right?" And it's not to make you feel guilty. Like I, I it's beginning to dawn on you that this is an act of love. And I, I think you know that we we, we we are challenged by that in the church today. This idea that, like, how do we present? the passion in a way that isn't designed to make people feel guilty because all too often, like the suffering of Jesus has been used as an instrument of guilt for people. And all too often our response to that is to not talk about the suffering of Jesus at all. So we, we have one error and we fix it with another error. Yeah. So, maybe Julian is the solution to all of that, <laughs> but so christ says you know are are you are you beginning to get it? Are you satisfied like do you um do you um, do you accept in your heart that this is for you out of love, not out of like satisfying?" Like Julian's wrath doesn't need to be satisfied by the sacrifice of the son, but Jesus wants to make sure that she's she's understanding what the suffering is all about, um, which is good because I I want to understand what all the suffering is about too. This this
2: idea that we are. Not not only is Christ not making satisfaction to the father, satisfying the father, but she talks about us being the gracious gift of the father to Christ. Um, That we are his bliss. We are his recompense. We are his honor. We are his crown. And that makes me think of the the showings with the, the crown digging into his, the crown of thorns digging into his flesh. But then to have that juxtaposed, to uh, to this, and this was a particular wonder and a wholly delightful vision that we are His crown, and this is why he suffer. He sets at naught all his labor, his pain, his suffering. Um, it's <laughs> she she flips it all on its head. This uh, that there is the Father is both giving, God is both giving up himself in the person of Christ on the cross, and the Father is giving us as the crowning glory of Christ. It's, it's, it's a beautiful gift. And the gift has to merely be
0: received. It does turn a lot of... I think, conventional Christian wisdom on its head. There's a model that I may have embraced at one time in my life, and I've moved on. But the idea is that, you know, God the Father created everything. Humans were the part of creation that messed things up, and we're the problem ever since. And then Christ has to come along and be sacrificed in order to set things right. And so everything was fine except for humanity. And so here's Julian saying, no, actually the humans um, are the crown, which Julian says very tenderly It's a particular wonder and a holy delightful vision that we are his crown. And I just imagine her kind of, um, spending a whole afternoon just meditating on that image. But we're not the crown of thorns.
1: Well, this is the very, very opposite of what I learned in religion class. Mm -hmm. That, that we are, as I learned, that we are a drag on Jesus, that we are Everything that we do just reinflicts his pain, and we're—I mean, he loves us, but it's a—it's such a, a vague and abstract love, a, a grudging love. That's what it is. It's a grudging love that that God has for us because of all our because of all our errors and sins and messing everything up and ruining things, and to think that. God sees us as a gift to His Son. That, that this is your this is your recompense is what she call what he, what she calls it here. That all these people that you suffered for, they're yours. They're yours. Happy Easter. They're yours, <laughs> and and this makes Him happy. It just it just amazes me that 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 can be that that can be the way things really are. And 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 it is the way things really are. I mean suddenly suddenly the sacrifice on the cross suddenly the passion suddenly the incarnation suddenly everything that has happened even from you know Abraham on even from Adam on only makes sense if we are such such a prize, such a beautiful, elegant, radiant gift. Yes, that's the meaning of it that's that it only makes sense if that's if that's what we are.
0: so why does it seem so hard for us to wrap our minds around? Is it because Suffering seems so unpleasant and we can't get that to live side by side with bliss and joy and delight.
1: I don't think people go into it. I don't think people go into it deeply at all. I think people see suffering as a punishment. Um, Christ's suffering on the cross was his taking our punishment. And everything bad that happens to us is is punishment and so naturally we we're, we're miserable we, we are meant to be miserable because of that
0: but we would never advise somebody who's suffering you know one of one of our friends or family no. somebody who's suffering we wouldn't say this is just the mirror image of of bliss for you
1: no, I don't know what we'd say to such a person. I, I know yeah. that I know that people do say um, to someone who is suffering, well, you're paying for your sins and think how hard Jesus suffered for you. I know that that has happened. I can cite mm-hmm. instances where that has happened. But to someone who is suffering, I don't think that there's a whole heck of a lot that we can say. Um, We've talked about this at at my parish with clergy and, and lay people and, you know, how do you, how do you deal with this sort of thing? And I think if you try to tell somebody that they're suffering, you know, say they're, they're in the hospital and they're in pain or something, you know, something like that, or they have big family problems and they're extremely sad. If you try to tell somebody that their suffering is in any way a mirror of what jesus had on the cross and that jesus is with you in your suffering and that it's all it's all for the good because you know if you try and say anything about it at all it comes off badly and you you get a bad result the only thing you can just say is i'm sorry you know i'll just be with you on you know during this I, i have no answer in
0: other words I think that there's a big difference between voluntary and involuntary suffering, in the same way that in a lot of the monastic uh, literature out there, there's a whole there's a whole lot of distinction made between voluntary poverty, you know, taking on the vow of mm-hmm. poverty, versus involuntary poverty, uh, and how voluntary suffering, like voluntary poverty, is a way of of um standing in solidarity with people who are involuntarily poor and suffering um but in so there's a big difference i think in the spiritual realm between um voluntary and involuntary so involuntary poverty or voluntary suffering is is a and an act of, like I said, of solidarity and, an, and therefore an act of love to renounce privilege um, in order to eliminate boundaries and barriers between you and someone else. One can be an act of love, but you know, not all suffering is the same, just like not all poverty is the same. So I think in a sense the, the suffering of Christ is different to the involuntary suffering that we go through, but is the same in that his suffering is involuntary, meant to be in solidarity with us and meant to break down barriers. But I think that you know it's it's an involuntary suffering because the Godhead chooses it. I mean, there's nothing inherent to the nature of the Trinity, right? Well, of course, no, this is a debatable point. Yeah. Is there something inherent to the Trinity that exposes the Trinity to suffering? Oh. Or mm-hmm. is suffering uh, an inevitable side effect of the Trinity's relationship to a, to a creation that can never be perfect? Hmm.
2: I think I <laughs> lean towards um <laughs> and I have been accused by my reformed friends of being a Bartian in this respect. Um that so you, you see it in Polgakov and I think here, like it's not just a reformed thing. Um this idea that it is in the Trinity's nature to reveal God's self. Um, And this goes with the idea that, um, that the incarnation and the passion that is part of the incarnation was not a, uh, a sort of plan B intervention into a creation that we messed up. Um, That this, uh, that the revelation of God in the person of the word made incarnate um, <laughs> was part of the game plan all along. That, that, that it, this kind of intimate revelation um, comes with the territory somehow of the relationship between God and God's creation. Um where, where that sits with the suffering specifically in the Incarnation, um, I think that's where we start to have to think about, um, sin, how we how we have messed up this world, and the the fact that part of this revelation that is inherent to the Trinity, um exposes the incarnate word um if if this self-revelation is sort of towards the end of bringing the creation into deeper relationship with god um the, the, the existence of sin then requires that act of revelation and theosis and divinization to reckon with overcome defeat the power of sin and i think that's that is done through the passion um so i i don't know that i think i i would s- stay away from the kind of process theology notion of the the Suffering of God being the unfolding of God's experience, and um, I'm not into that. Um, but I think the the act of self revelation is inherent to God, um, and the existence of sin means that that joyous self revelation and gathering in of creation into God includes this kenosis, this total self-offering on the cross. Does that make sense? Am I, does that sound
0: kooky?
1: <laughs> it makes sense to me.
0: I think Julian actually answers us in the middle of chapter 23 or, or speaks to it. Let's do it. Uh, where she says, This is midway through chapter 23. The whole Trinity acted in the passion of Christ. The whole Trinity acted in the passion of Christ, ministering an abundance of strengths and plenitude of grace to us by him. But only the Maiden's son suffered, about which the whole blessed Trinity endlessly rejoices. So at least as far as Julian's meditation on her, and this, by the way, this, this little section here is, Another thing that's not found in the short text, but is added in the lo- the long text, so it's a fruit of her, um, of her meditation and contemplation of of what's going on. I suppose. Um, so I think the, uh, Julian's take on it would be that suffering is a side effect of Christ's incarnate nature yeah and is not something that's a characteristic of the whole of the trinity yeah but But insofar as the
2: incarnation is an action of the trinity
0: yeah but as insofar as the as the maiden son as she calls him is the primary bridge between the trinity and humanity that suffering as a side effect of the outpouring of love is particular to Christ. Mm
2: -hmm. I'm hearing that as consistent with what I said. Do you? Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: I love Julian's Trinitarian theology because it is so basic. It's just... (laughs) Three in one end of story. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to go into volumes and volumes and volumes and pages and pages and pages about exactly how it works. And um I I tend to oversimplify things. I understand that about myself. But uh <clears throat> I, I appreciate I appreciate her Trinitarian point of view. She's perfectly comfortable. With seeing the Trinity wherever she sees, wherever she perceives one person of the Trinity, <clears mm-hmm. <clears <throat> she sees it all and um,
2: united in operation.
1: I just, I just like it.
0: So, if I had to summarize these three chapters, um, I think I would try to summarize. Th- Th- these three chapters by by saying that 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 what's being presented, what's being given here is Julian's doctrine of of uh, the sort of the forcefulness of Christ's gift, this sort of like drinking from the fire hose, Feeling of Christ's gift, where Christ is almost, you know, the, the the and for me, the hinge of the whole thing turns around this question, where Christ is saying, "Are you satisfied that I did this for you?" As though, like, it is important that Christ knows that we begin to know what's going on. That that and and it feels like that's part of the loop that is often missed in Christian theology like there's a lot of disc- discussion about you know what Christ does on the cross and what his you know the nature of the incarnation and um and so this like objective character of Christ's gift to, to humanity and then there's a discussion of like how we respond in faith but what's missing so often is is that it matters to Christ that we know that we're loved. Mm. And that feels like the 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 fresh thing in this. Like it mm-hmm. Christ loves us so much that not only did he kind of offer his life on the cross but that he want it's he needs us to know that we're loved. Like that's part of the love is that we begin to know that we're loved. Um and there's this kind of pressure behind it that really feels like, to me, like the heart of these three chapters that we've been working on. The- yeah. 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 And in a sense, it's like an extension of the passion. Like Christ is, is constantly suffering, even to the point where part of that suffering is is him saying, like, you get it, right? Tell me, you Tell me you get it. I need you to get it. <laughs> I need you to understand. And so often we don't. We you know, we we get a little glimpse of it, but I think if we really understood, if we really felt the immensity of of that love, um we'd never not feel it. I guess. <laughs> anyway, do, do we have final thoughts on chapter 23? I think that's a good final thought. Have, okay.
1: I have one. Okay. And it's it's a little off-center. off, off center. It's a little on a tangent. <clears throat> <laughs> but the theologian, the Orthodox theologian, David Bentley Hart, mm-hmm. basically in his writing – Instead of saying that something is blessed, he says it's blissful. And if you bless someone, you make them blissful. So he basically combines those two concepts in one word and he does it intentionally, of course. And it's, it's just interesting to me that it opens up this idea that blessing, which which I think people can feel kind of indifferent toward that that you have a blessing. Oh, this is a blessing that I saw that tree in leaf or something. Um, but if you, if you make that blissful, it just, it just ups the ante on both words and, and on the whole concept of what, of what God does for us and what we can do for each other. And Julian uses the word bliss a lot in these three chapters and um, and bless too but it's just an interesting take for me on that Mm
0: -hmm. that's all I like it bliss is a particularly powerful word it's like super happiness I wonder where it comes from what's the source of bliss
1: well he would be saying that happiness and holiness are the same that's the implication that I get from this meshing of the terms I'll look up bliss and see where it comes from
0: it's apparently from the old English bliths B-L-I-T-H-S
1: oh okay
0: I'll probably trim that bit up. (laughs) Thank you for uh, for, um, the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Again, we'll talk again next week. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter or on Facebook. You can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.